The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Books Podcast. I'm Tim Haig and I've had the privilege of talking to some wonderful authors for this series. Um, we've had uh, Neil Jordan, uh, Joanne Harris, Ian Banks, uh, Terry Pratchett, Helen Lewis, many, many more. So subscribe now on your favourite podcast player to hear them. And of course, please tell your friends. Well, tell anybody you'll listen. For this episode, I'm joined by Mike Jay to discuss his new book, Psychonauts. The scientists were always giving themselves huge electric shocks or um, inhaling poison gases or doing surgery on themselves. Freud was actually, as we know, a very sober, cautious figure, and his self-experiments with cocaine had been quite sober and cautious. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? Mike, thank you for joining us on Books Podcast. It's a pleasure, Tim. Well, first things first, what are psychonauts? Uh, a psychonaut, it's a term that you hear quite a lot if you sort of listen to people talking about um, psychedelics and things these days. It's uh, uh, particularly people who don't want to be thought of as just sort of hedonistic <laughs> dabblers and Think drug I can takers. See where you're going, you know, yeah. it's people who are a little bit more serious. It comes from. Uh, a novel by uh, Ernst Junger, a German novelist in the 1940s. He wrote a futuristic novel about uh, where there's a cadre of scientists who uh, uh, design new drugs and take them to explore hidden you know, reaches of the mind. Uh, so he used the word psychonaut there. And uh, he was the great mentor and guru to... Uh, the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, who uh, has discovered LSD. So you say uh, discovered? Did he discover it or invent it? I've never really been clear about the distinction. It's a really good question. I mean, it didn't um, uh, exist in nature. He was. It, I mean, it. Uh, he was playing around with ergot, which is a fungus which has lots of uh, drugs in and was used in. Uh, medicine in all kinds of ways and he um, so, so he synthesized a series of artificial ones and uh, one of which was um, lysergic acid diethylamide L LSD so uh, um, discover or invent is a is a good question I mean I think you would say discover if uh, it was already in the plant in that yeah, form. Yeah if it was peyote you'd say it was it was a discovery. Yes I mean uh, mescaline was isolated from the peyote cactus uh, uh, with uh, LSD, it was slightly different. It was chemicals that were taken from the uh, ergot fungus were mucked around with to produce something that hadn't existed in nature. So, w when we say psychonauts, we mean uh, people who are uh, taking drugs w w with a purpose rather than uh, just recreationally. Then. To explore the mind, to explore consciousness or whatever. Um, uh, which is very much the hallmark of the period that I'm writing about. Uh, well, yes, of course, book. we tend to think of the, the 1960s as the sort of golden age of, of, of drug taking. But actually, and, and we discover from your book that um, the, 19, the late 19th century was the real golden age. Yes, that's right. I mean, like most people, I grew up assuming that drugs had kind of been invented or discovered in the 1960s and uh, nobody much had been interested in them before. Uh, but in fact... Um, Yes, as you say, uh, it turns out that there was, you know, people, you know, all the way through the history of science, really, uh, people 
who are interested in studying the mind and consciousness have been fascinated by drugs that alter it. And all the way up until the 20th century, uh, it would be very common uh, for people investigating it to start off by taking those drugs themselves and seeing what their effects were and writing a description of it. So that's the sense in which I call these people um, psychonauts. They didn't, uh, the word at the time that people used was self-experimenter. People self-experimented, but that wasn't particularly related to drugs. The 19th century in particular was a, a great age of self-experimentation in science. So scientists were always giving themselves huge electric shocks or um, inhaling poison gases or, 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 or doing like, surgery on like themselves. Like Newton, you, you, you remind us that Isaac Newton was uh, trying investigating the function of his eye by sticking a bodkin behind his eyeball. Yeah, that's which, right. Uh, it strikes you as a, a, a radically reckless thing to do. But, you know, that in those days, there was no kind of, um, you know, sort of neuroscience technology. You know, there were no brain scans. And, um, yeah, I, would, I mean, it was... Um Newton's an interesting example because, of course, the Royal Society, which we think of as the beginning of modern science, was all about experiment. Everything had to be demonstrated by experiment and experiments had to be witnessed and they had to be replicated. And uh, But there were always some classes of things that you couldn't um, experiment with in a normal way. I mean, this, um, Newton was fascinated when he was doing his work on light and the spectrum uh, by these kind of images that you got if you stuck your finger into your eye and uh, closed your eyelid and you'd see all these colours. So where were these colours coming from? And you obviously couldn't, um, you know, experiment on them in the ways that you could experiment on uh, things in the real world because these colours only existed in Newton's head. So he described the experiment, as you say, sticking a big thing like a knitting needle into his eye socket. And he showed that, you know, when you dent the curvature of the eyeball, then you start to get refraction. And that's what these, you know, rainbow images are. So it was all, you know, good solid science, but he had to do it by experimenting on himself. So if we speak about the uh, the uh, ex scientific experiments into the mind, well, inevitably, Sigmund Freud is a, a, a constant presence in the first half of this book. It crops up later on as well. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure that his investigations into cocaine are the very first thing that um, that the general public think of when they think of uh, Freud, but it's a, it was a big part of his early career. Yes, it was. I mean, it was before he became the famous Sigmund Freud, uh, you know, before he came up with his theories of psychoanalysis and interpretation of dreams and so on. And it was also before cocaine became this drug which has all the, you know, all the associations we have today from kind of South American um, narco-traffickers <laughs> to oh, the old um, Colombian celebrity party, excess yeah. <laughs> and all that. So... Um, this is back in the 1880s when, you know, Freud was a young, hardworking neurologist, uh, very ambitious and looking for success. Uh, and cocaine was um, uh, a, a drug that most people didn't know very much about. People knew about um, the coca leaf that it came from a little bit. You could get coca wines and tonics and things that were stimulants. But Freud was one of the first people to really experiment with cocaine, the white powder, and um, uh, wrote... Uh, you know, I think very beautifully and very penetratingly, you know, about uh, um, those different um, effects that it had as a stimulant and as a euphoriant. And he was particularly, I mean, the great disease of the age, the sort of nervous disease that everybody was worried about was uh, called neurasthenia, which isn't a diagnosis we get anymore, but I think probably almost everything from anxiety to depression to PTSD, you know, would probably have been diagnosed as neurasthenia in those days. There was a great sense in that 
late Victorian age that everything was getting very industrialized, mechanized. We were all working for the machine, working too hard. We couldn't keep up. So Freud thought, well, maybe cocaine is the stimulants that we need to uh, enable us to deal with the stresses and exertions of modern life. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that all the different drugs tended to, somebody advocated for them to be the, 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 the panacea. You, you've got um, uh, nitrous oxide, of mm -hmm. course. Humphrey Davy doing lots of uh, experiments with nitrous oxide. Uh, Thomas de Quincey and opium and other mm -hmm. people thought that opium would be the, uh, the ether. All, all the sort of drugs that were, and, and this is why the, the late 19th century is, is the golden age, isn't it? Because they're all coming on stream at this point. And somebody somewhere is saying, this is it. This is what's going to uh, cure crazy people or uh, solve, in many cases, it did solve the anaesthetic problem. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it's, there's, this, there's this range of different people. Balzac, you, you tell us, drinking more coffee than a human being can consume. <laughs> yes, absolutely. With it. But what's interesting to me is that they, they, they all tended to speak of whichever was their favourite drug. Uh, as though it was the one, and, and, and very much in the same sorts of terms. Yes, that's right. I mean, of course, um, you know, we're being slightly anachronistic in our use of the word drug there, because, um, you know, when we say drugs now, we think of these sort of things that are... It's still slightly hard to define. It means that they're psychoactive, but it also means they're illegal or illicit. But uh, back in the 19th century, there was no such distinction. You know, drugs were... No, because you could any you just order these things from the pharmacy as well, yes, if you exactly. wanted any of these. I mean, these, these, these things that nowadays you'd be arrested for, order them from the pharmacy, they'd come through the post. Yes, I mean, they were... Um, uh, you know, these were all things that just, yeah, sat on the pharmacy counter. And if you wanted a stimulant or a sedative, I mean, there was no sort of diff categorical difference between, you know, say aspirin or heroin or whatever. But yeah, and, the, and these drugs had really transformed, you know, the human condition, I think. If you think about um, uh, anesthesia, for example, uh, I mean, everybody everywhere throughout history, all around the world would have, you know, assumed that, uh, you know, they would be very lucky to get through their lives without suffering unbearable pain at some point. If they had to have surgery, you know, that was going to be incredibly traumatic. Uh, so the discovery of anesthesia and the fact that uh, you could uh, remove, separate the mind from the body and remove pain in that way, uh, you know, really was transformational. And then when morphine came along and the hypodermic needle, then uh, you could... Um, you know, pain was really something that could be dealt with, you know, almost totally and almost in instantaneously. So uh, uh, drugs did transform everybody's lives in the 19th century. And uh, there were all these uh, things with remarkable properties that, uh, you know, from hashish to cocaine to uh, ether to nitrous oxide. Uh, and it was a real, you know, this is very much the cutting edge of science. And people were fascinated to see what they could do and how they could be used. Well, here's another interesting thing as well, because all all the various uh, reports of the different kinds of drugs tend to say the same sorts of things. They all talk about hallucinations and, mm. and, and euphorias and things. And, well, I mean, <clears throat> as far as this is concerned, I'm very interested, but I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, the man at the, the orgy who keeps his wife fronts on. I, I, I don't have a lot of experience of this. Mm. But when I was a student, people were taking uh, uh, grass and hashish. It wasn't about hallucinations, and yet um, when, when hashish is first introduced, people are talking about these spectacular yes. things that we would associate with psychedelics. Yes, well, that's because, um, you know, your student colleagues were probably, you know, 
smoking the odd joint and they weren't doing what people did in the 19th century, which was to take really quite a large lump of hashish and eat it. And if you do that, um, you know, people are starting to realise this a bit more, particularly in the States with all these legal cannabis edibles, you can take enormous doses which render you kind of, kind of unable to move or speak for hours and hours and hours and you just have these hallucinations running around your mind. And these were fascinating because... Um, uh, what produced hallucinations? You know, this was something that anybody, any scientist interested in the mind was interested in. And it was very hard to get a straightforward account of what hallucination was because people who were hallucinating were normally either suffering from sort of psychosis or schizophrenia or else they had a high fever and were very, very ill or delirious. So what was fascinating about something like um, hashish for these 19th century doctors and scientists was you could eat an enormous amount of it and then start seeing all these hallucinations appearing. But there was also a part of your mind that was sober. And if somebody said, what are you seeing? You could give a long running commentary for hours in enormous detail. So uh, these were... Um, and, you know, this is what I think is so fascinating about uh, these experiments at this time is that uh, everybody is very focused on writing them down and describing them. You know, it's very different from the sort of science of psychedelics today, which is all about brain scans and neurotransmitters. And no scientists these days actually talk about their experiences or what happens or what's it like. But that's what the 19th century literature was all about. And a lot of um, scientists and doctors were very good writers. A lot of them were also poets or novelists. And medicine at that time was very, is, you know, description was very, very important. They didn't have these tick box diagnoses that we had today where you could say, oh, this is clearly a case of X. Um, they got very, very good at, uh, if you said to a doctor you had a cough, he'd say, oh, you know, what sort of cough? You know, would you call it was a hacking cough, a dry cough, a productive cough? You know, that's, uh, you know, there was a great language there. So uh, um, a lot of this um, experimentation was really focused on producing these often very beautifully written and quite literary uh, first-person reports. You're very good in your book, actually, on this, uh, on this uh, change, the sociological change over time, uh, where you've got this late 19th century uh, syndrome of a lot of people self-experimenting and investigating mm -hmm. uh, the mind. Then we go into the early 20th century, and it gets derailed by um, the, the behaviorism, which... Yes. Um, was always, as far as I'm concerned, was always a dead end um, and, and completely missed the point. But then, of course, then you can move on to technological investigations. So th th there is a change in attitude. Uh, and, of course, the first half of the 20th century, you've mm. also got the prohibition, the, the mm. puritanical attitude, which, which uh, brings in the new use of the word drugs and disapproves of them mm -hmm. um, in a way that was less true. Although, of course, and this is where I wanted to go back to in in the ninety eight there uh, there's a point at which self experimentation can become dissipation. There were there were um, uh, people who overdid these things and and suffered and 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 you know were classic <laughs> drug addicts back then. Mm -hmm. Even within the the uh, groups who who were taken again from your book, <laughs> you make the point that most drug addicts in the late nineteenth century were either um, very rich or doctors. Yes. Because who else was going to have <laughs> access to these things? That's right. Yes, there's an amazingly um, 
fast turnaround um, between the late 19th century, which again, in the broader culture, we think of that as the yellow 90s and the decadent era. And that really stops very suddenly, almost as soon as the clock ticks round to 1900, you know, almost to the day, you can see this huge cultural change. And when people look at the history of drugs, it's very obvious. And people say, oh, this is the beginning of the war on drugs and uh, the prohibition movement. And that's true. But uh, what I hadn't really realized until writing this book was how much um, the science of drugs changed. As you say, in the 19th century, these kind of these ex describing these experiences, these hallucinations and these euphorias was fascinating. Nobody had ever been there before. You know, uh, we were just starting to understand, you know, that uh, there was an unconscious mind, you know, that was not uh, that we weren't aware of and that, uh, you know, it's different states of consciousness. You know, our minds behave quite differently. So uh, that was all fascinating but then as you say you know in the um early 20th century um behaviorism came along and uh uh people started running you know it was more interesting to run rats through mazes than it was to listen to uh, you know some doctor pontif pontificating about their drug experiences um, but it was also the age of statistics it was um I think you know, people always said the 19th century was the era of the individual, and certainly a lot of these figures that, you know, shall, like Baudelaire and Thomas de Quincey, you know, are very much maverick individual figures. And the 20th century was the beginning of mass movements and mass politics and mass culture. And you started to, uh, people started to collect much, much more data about people, uh, you know, things like the sort of actuarial uh statistics that insurance companies gathered so you could see that you know looking at people as a mass rather than as individuals you could say oh well people who are heavy drinkers um you know or who use drugs are also the people who tend to suffer from chronic diseases and whose life expectancy is lower so you could start to put people into classes and drug takers became you know people who were uh, impulsive and kind of had you know had sort of uh, poor impulse control and made bad decisions and once that image started to develop uh, then it was well we must control these things so the whole language of talking about drugs moved into this language of sort of uh, prohibition and regulation and restriction and when that was the sort of tenor of the conversation it was much harder to for people to say i had an amazing experience on drugs you know it just uh, yeah but of course <laughs> by definition there are no first hand experiences experiences of fatal overdoses. Yes, that's right. Yes, exactly. I was very taken with, you tell us about uh, Dr. Ernst von fleischel Marxolf, um, yes. who was a mentor for Freud, well, back to Freud, of course. Um, and and he, he's like, a, he's a balance to Freud's uh, measured approach to uh, the use of cocaine, isn't he? Yes, this is really sort of uh, Freud's terrible downfall, you know, because... Uh, the first stuff that he wrote about cocaine was, uh, you know, people were fascinated by it. You know, it was beautifully written. He became the sort of, you know, great medical expert on cocaine just at the time that it became this huge sort of new pharmaceutical uh, success story. And uh, all the pharmaceutical companies wanted Freud's endorsement for their brand of cocaine and so on. But this was, so this was the high, which didn't last very long because it only really got going when uh, Freud decided to give cocaine to his friend von Fleischel who was uh, 
a mentor to Freud, an older figure, brilliant figure uh, who Freud admired enormously, but also someone struggling with terrible, terrible pain because he had uh, he'd given himself a little nick during surgery that had got infected and uh, on his hand, and he'd had surgery that had gone wrong, and he was having terrible, excruciating pain all the time and taking lots of morphine to control well, of course, it. When he first takes it, he goes, fantastic, I found the solution to my chronic pain, my, which was unbearable. We, um, we understand that. But and 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 Freud is delighted. His his friend and mentor is is being helped. Yes, and, and, they, then, and, they, and they both rushed into print. You know, within <laughs> with, within days to say this is a new miracle cure for not only is it a wonderful sort of pain reliever, but it also cures the morphine habit. And of course, as you know, predictably, it all went terribly wrong very fast. And uh, Fleischl started taking enormous amounts of cocaine and injecting it. Uh, and this, I think, completely blindsided Freud because Freud was actually, you know, uh, as we know, a very sober, cautious figure. And his self-experiments with cocaine had been quite sober and cautious. He'd only taken quite small doses of it and he'd never injected it. And he always he thought that was how everybody else would take it. So he was completely blindsided to dis discover that you could actually, you know, just go completely gung-ho and crazy and keep taking more and more of it until you were having chronic insomnia and thought that bugs were crawling around on your skin and you were going completely mad. So uh, Freud was in this um, terrible situation where he just told the entire world that this was a miracle drug and then he was having to spend nights with um, uh, von Fleischl, you know, witnessing the terrible consequences of um, cocaine dependency and sort of massive cocaine overdose. <laughs> well, of course, that's what's going to happen if you're if you're an advocate. But you, you do cite some very interesting advocates. Um, William James, a professor mm -hmm. of philosophy at Harvard, is uh, going out and, and uh, telling people that... Uh, in fact, I can, I can find the quote. I strongly urge others to repeat the experiment with nitrous oxide. Where he, th he thought it was desirable that people should uh, pursue Yes, definitely. And it, I mean, it's been introduced to him by this kind of uh, strange um, autodidact kind of local figure called Benjamin Blood, who sort of uh, worked out an enormous sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, philosophy and sort of whole entire sort of cosmic vision based on his nitrous oxide experience and always insisted you have to try it you can't understand it until you try it and so uh, William James who was also very conscious you know a very cautious um, figure with quite poor health decided to try it and uh, I think it's very influential on the whole rest of his philosophy the next sort of two, 20 or 30 years it made him uh, 20 years after he took nitrous oxide in his you know, great final work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he said, the lesson that I learned that I've never forgotten was that there are all kinds of states of consciousness and our normal waking state of consciousness is just one of many. And, you know, just a lungful of nitrous oxide or something like that can take you into a different state of consciousness where the world looks completely different. And, uh, you know, this became sort of really a big part of his philosophy. I mean, we think of, you know, the phrase of his we probably remember most is, stream of consciousness um that co that our consciousness isn't just one idea followed by another idea followed by another idea like carriages it, on a train it may have been onto something too it's yeah it's, uh, there's all kinds of things swirling around in our mind all the time and we might be having trivial thoughts and profound thoughts and transcendental experiences all at the same time well, of course that brings us to uh, another point which is that there, there was a another side of uh, this this experimentation which is a kind of spiritual mm. uh, and and uh, religious uh, 
Was there a split between the scientists and the spiritualists in their in their uh, approach to uh, to taking these drugs? Yes, there was, and um, it's. I mean, that's very interesting from this point of view, you know, because we're sort of in the 21st century. We're in our psychedelic renaissance and everybody's talking about uh, psychedelics giving people religious experiences. And uh, William James is very much the intellectual inspiration for all this. But people um, using uh, things like... uh, ether or chloroform or nitrous oxide were finding, like William James, that you could uh, have these um, experiences where you seem to go to a completely different reality. You lost all sense of your body. You seem to exist in another dimension. And uh, then you kind of came back with this uh, often kind of massively significant um, sense of revelation, which was very hard to write down and capture. So what was going on here? Um, some, for some people, this was like, well, this is obviously telling us something about the brain when it's disconnected from the body. This is just a physiological response. Uh, there were other people saying, well, maybe, you know, this is a conduit into the subliminal mind. You know, maybe we have, you know, this other, all these other parts of our brain that we don't understand. And then there were other people saying, well, you know, maybe this is just a connection to actually a genuine alternate reality, the astral plane or whatever. Maybe we're actually, you know, contacting spirits. So the same experience, you know, which was a very experience that couldn't really be explained within sort of normal, ordinary reality. Um, all sorts of people were finding, as they do today, very, very different explanations for that. what that might be. You know, might that be telling us something about our minds, or might it be telling us some sort of deeper truth about the, the universe? Well, you use the phrase uh, psychedelic renaissance there. Do you think that we are moving into a, a sort of a new approach? Because my, my sense is that there's still a very puritanical approach to... Uh, to mind-altering substances. Do you think we're growing up from that? The, uh, the book, in a way, is it's it's not polemical, but I'm wondering if you have a, an attitude to to uh, the disapproval or the acceptance. I think we're heading back towards a um, a more kind of uh, sort of polyphonic um, engagement with 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 drugs. So I, mean, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, when the word drugs started to be used in the sense that we're <laughs> this pejorative using sense, it yeah. now, it meant something that was illegal and sort of dirty and probably foreign and, uh, you know, medically inadvisable. It's not something that was bad. And I think that's part of the reason why um, half, you know, 50 years later in the sort of post-war period in the 20th century, the word psychedelic when it was first coined, you know, by Aldous Huxley and uh, Humphrey Osmond was very useful because it didn't have these pejorative associations. In fact, it had, you know, rather sort of um, positive ones. It meant, uh, you know, kind of uh, self-transcendence and personal growth and mystical experience and all these rather exciting, positive things. So I think um, what we had in the first half of the 20th century was, uh, you know, all drug use was pathologized, and I think that hasn't gone away, and it's no, really still here. But I think it's been joined by this other idea, and I think which I think psychedelic captures that um, these drugs might have, um, you know, sort of beneficial uses, and it's really they've really been instrumentalized now in the sort of medical professional people talking about psychedelic therapy and running clinical trials of them for as treatments for different types of mental disorders. And uh, I think that really has changed things in terms of at the level of, um, you know, bureaucracy, that these drugs are not simply 
banned anymore. In fact, there's an enormous amount of money going into uh, you know people trying to you know start up companies and Silicon Valley entrepreneurs trying to license them and uh, corner the market in them and well, sell of them. Cannabis is now uh, has been rehabilitated, hasn't it? Yes, it has. So I think we, we're in this strange situation with psychedelics and with cannabis, where there's an enormous amounts of money coming from sort of you know drug enforcement and government programs to uh, close them down, and at the same time, there's uh, you know just large amounts of money also pouring into trying to uh, commercialize them and make them available under strict medical controls so they can be monetized, <laughs> of course. I, that's exactly <laughs> where I was going. Do you think that the problem that the authorities have with, with uh, the, these mind-altering substances is that they're democratic, that they're not, uh, they're not uh, in the behaviorist way, you know, something that you mm-hmm. can categorize and, 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 uh, and uh, turn into statistics. They are a personal experience. And, and you know, authoritative uh, organizations don't like that much at all. No, that's right. And I think in the same sense, they're kind of... Um they're hard to make money out of, you know. So I think I mean, if, you say if, that. If you but in, at, we talked about a, a, mm. another of your books earlier, uh, a few years ago, um, in which you, I think you you said that uh, the drugs trade is like the third biggest. Yes, that's right. Uh, um, money making trade in the world. Yeah. Um, so uh, no, they're mm-hmm. not difficult to make money out of. Well, sure. Well, no, and, sure, and of course the pharmaceutical industry is absolutely enormous, and the amount of money made for. Um, you know, sort of licensed and proprietary pharmaceuticals is in the billions and billions. It's absolutely enormous. I think the problem is with turning something like uh, things like psychedelics into that because, um, you know, I mean, your magic mushrooms, you know, grow anywhere. You can simply go and pick them, you know, and these, uh, you know, they're not enormously valuable um, commodities unless you somehow, you know, get a commercial monopoly on them. And I think, you know, when I look at the, all the sort of work that's being done on psychedelic therapy and clinical trials, um, it seems to me that the sort of un, the, the sort of question behind this that she's hiding is kind of how do we make money out of this? Well, obviously we'd have to restrict their use to um, doctors, and obviously the doctors would have to charge by the hour for these experiences, and obviously the drugs would have to be licensed and come from pharmaceutical companies and be charged at the rate that you know American pharmaceuticals are. So it seems to me that that's the model um, that has been pushed for the last few years. But, well, I think uh, you're right. That's the model, but there mm. is another model: the breweries. You know, you could, you could, uh, if you regard it as a recreational activity. We're perfectly happy to sell beer in every pub, and uh, the breweries make money out of that. There, there is another model, surely. For there is, I think there are lots of other models. There's definitely the brewery model, you know, which is selling things from licensed premises. And you know, if you go to most of the states in America now, you'll find uh, cannabis shops which are like this. They're quite strictly licensed, of course. You have to show ID before you can get in, and you're only allowed to buy. So, I mean, this or that, you know, and, uh, you know, so there's that licensed model. But then there's also a kind of a real grassroots model, which has grown up with um, cannabis in um, uh, countries like Spain, quite a lot of Southern Europe, you know, which is a sort of growers club model. Where uh-huh. uh, I don't know about know, this. Uh, it's sort of... Um, well, where you're kind of sort of semi-unofficially allowed to grow four or five plants yourself, then in um, sort of towns, you know, there's normally a couple of people who are very good at growing. It's the equivalent said, of machine, uh, where you... Yes, exactly. So <laughs> you can say, well, you can grow four or five for me as well. So you end up with sort of people who are, you know, growing a couple of hundred plants and supplying the local area. And uh, that's got a lot to be said for it because it takes the money out of the equation. 
Uh, and uh, it also means it takes um, the drugs off the streets because, you know, local people can find what they want. And then, you know, there's no point you don't get drug tourism because you're not allowed to buy this stuff if you're not from the area. So I think there is a sort of local grassroots model which would uh, work for, you know, things like magic mushrooms just as it does for cannabis. So I think we might expect to see all these different models. I mean, we're already seeing that in the in the States, in uh, Oregon and uh, I think Colorado have sort of started to... Uh, uh, decriminalize these sort of plant psychedelics, you know, the cacti and the mushrooms. And oh, you things. say Colorado, you remind me of Hunter S. Thompson. It's <laughs> not in your book, but he said something about, you know, hey, given my life and what it's done for me, I'd have to advocate taking hard drugs because it's done me great stuff. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, it's, uh, um, yeah, I think. Uh, I think those figures, you know, those kind of great libertine figures that we grew up with, the sort of uh, Hunter Thompson and William Burroughs, you know, we sort of look back at them now from a modern perspective and think, well, they were a privileged few and they were all white men and they actually behaved extremely badly to everybody and got away with it. I think, uh, you know, again, the, the culture has shifted away from that much as it shifted away from the Baudelaire's and De Quincey's yeah, so when you got not to role the early 20th century. Okay. That's right. Well, as you can tell, Mike, I found the book uh, pretty mind-blowing. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> very much indeed thank you so much oh real pleasure Tim well the book is Psychonauts by Mike J it's published by Yale University Press at £20 if you enjoyed this interview subscribe now to be notified of upcoming episodes and in the next books podcast we have a book about the bizarre cast of characters who contributed to the first Oxford English Dictionary Also in the offing is an exciting new departure for us. We're doing a live recording of a books podcast. More on that later. So please do click subscribe now and follow us on Facebook at Books Podcast Tim to be kept in the loop. That was the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at Books Podcast and Facebook at Books Podcast Tim.